If you would, please open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Arguably one of the top ten chapters in all of the Bible. I don't think this will be a top ten sermon, but a very important text. I'm not going to cover chapter 8 as I had advertised. I'm going to focus our attention on chapter 7. How many of you here have at some point in your life been to kids camp? To the great getaway? Okay, I've got a decent amount of you. So I think you can help me with a little exercise. My title this morning comes from a little litany that we do at kids camp. When one of the leaders stands up and says, take a seat, how are you to respond? Take There we go. Let's do that again. Let's try it again. Take a seat. There you go. That pretty much sums up my message this morning. That's it. Let me explain how. When you take a seat and take a load off your feet, you are, in the most basic sense, resting. But there is more to it than that. For example, when someone stands up to speak, if you take a seat, you are sitting down to listen up. You are leaning in to learn. To take a seat is to assume a posture of humility. When you take a seat, you are also taking a break from doing. You stop serving for a moment so that you can be served. And as Jesus taught Martha, it is better to sit than to serve. As Martha was busy cleaning and cooking in the kitchen, a good thing, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is a better thing. That's my message this morning. We need to take a seat, to take the posture of a listener. And as we listen to God in His Word, we will learn that what matters most is what God has done for us, not what we do for God. What matters most is not, if I can say it, serving God. But it's God serving us. Sure, serving God matters immensely. But even our service to God is predicated on God's previous service to us. What we do for God flows out of what God has done for us. Take a seat. The reason I've titled my sermon this has to do with a key word in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This chapter is divided into three parts. You have the setup in verses 1 to 3. But then God speaks to David, gives a promise to David in verses 4 to 17. And then beginning in verse 18, David responds to God's word. And each of these 
three sections begins with the same key word. In Hebrew, it's yashav. It's translated in different ways throughout the chapter, but in each you could translate it as seated or sit. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 1 to 3. We read, Now when the king lived or sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I now dwell or sit. It's the same word. In a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells or sits in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So you see, God had given David rest from all of his enemies, but David is still restless. God had given David a seat, but David now wants to stand up. God had done so much for David, but David now wants to do something for God. And so God's Word comes to David to teach him a lesson that what matters most is what God does for him, not what David does for God. In verse 5, God says, Would you build me a house to dwell in or to sit in? Then David, God goes on to tell David what He'll do for him. He'll build him a house. Not a dwelling place, but an everlasting dynasty. Afterward, David responds to God's Word, and we're told in verse 18 that King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David comes to see throughout this chapter that what matters most is what God has done for him and his house not what David would do for God. And it is my prayer that as we look at God's Word to David, verses 4 to 17, and then David's response to God in the verses that follow, that we would also learn what God has done for us through the promise that God made to David. Hopefully, we'll learn to take a seat, to sit down, and to listen up to God's promises so that we can eventually stand on those very promises. Would you please stand now for the reading of God's Word? Begin reading in verse 4 through the end of chapter 7. So Nathan tells the king to go and do all that's in his heart, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instructive for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to all your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore, may it please you 
to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The passage is divided into three parts, as I said, but these verses I just read, which we will focus on, are divided into two parts. God's word to David, and then David's response to the word of God spoken to him. I want to make two points from God's word to David. Two points of promise. And then two points from David's response to God's word. Two points of application. Let's begin with God's word to David in verses 4 to 17. David wanted to build a house for God, specifically for the Ark of the Covenant. Why didn't God let David do what was in his heart to do? After all, this was a reasonable desire. In fact, I would go further than that. I would say that it is likely a desire that came from deep and prolonged meditation on God's Word. You see, David would have known God's Word very well. And he would have been very familiar with Deuteronomy 12, which says that when the Lord gives rest to His people from all of their enemies that he will call them to go to one specific place and to worship God there and there alone in that one specific place. Now, David is aware that God has given him rest from all of his enemies. He has now set up shop in Jerusalem, the place of God's choosing it only makes sense that he would now build a temple for the ark. Remember what we learned last week. David wants his throne situated in the shadow of God's throne, which was represented in the ark of the covenant. So now that David's throne has found its permanent place, doesn't it make sense that God's throne would also have a permanent place? Not a transitory tent, for a transitory people, but a permanent place for a people that God has granted rest. A reasonable desire. But one significant problem with this reasonable desire, God hadn't told him to do it. God told Moses to build the tabernacle and gave elaborate plans for it. But God hadn't told David and God hadn't told anybody else previous to this that he wanted a temple built for him. All of God's plans must be established by God's initiative and by God's word. And so God says to David in verses 5 to 6, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. And he goes on to say, and I never spoke any word to anyone commanding them to build me one. All of God's plans 
are established by God's initiative and God's word. And it wasn't God's plan for David to build a house for God. It was the wrong time, and David was the wrong man. David's son, Solomon, would be called by God to do that very thing, but not David. But here's the thing. Here's the focus. God had a better plan for David. God wanted to do something for David more important than what got what David wanted to do for God. In verse 8, God reminds David of all that he had done for him up to this point before he goes on to tell him what he will do for him. Verse 8 sets the tone for what is to follow. He says he had taken David from the pasture and made him prince. He had been present with him and he had given him protection from all of his enemies. The point is, all that had happened in David's life up to this point was through God's amazing grace. And it would be that same grace that would lead him home. As the hymn says, that same grace that would be present in God's future promises for him. Which he begins to enumerate in verse 9. David would not build a house for God. God would build a house for him. Look again at verse 5 so that you can see this contrast. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now look at verse 12. The Lord will make you a house. And then that's repeated again in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. So David wanted to build for God a dwelling place. But God is going to build for David a dynasty. And that leads me to my first point, a point of promise. God promised David a royal seat that will stand forever. A royal seat, a throne that will stand forever. Now this is an interesting promise because David was already on the throne. God had already given him rest from all of his enemies. But God wanted David to see, and he wants us to see, that he had bigger plans for David, plans that extended beyond David's lifetime, plans that extended beyond even the borders of the nation of Israel. In fact, the promises that God makes to David here, we should hear echo of the promises that God had made earlier to Abraham. The covenant that God had established with Abraham is being clarified and advanced in the covenant that God is making with David here. Remember what God said to Abraham. He would make him into a great nation. And he would bless him. And he promised that he would give to his descendants a place. The promised land. And he promised to bless those who blessed them. To curse those who cursed them. And that through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now God says to David, 
who is the offspring of Abraham, is he not? That he will make David's name great. He promises to give his people a place to dwell in, a place that will be disturbed no more. It's in verses 9 to 11. Moreover, beginning in verse 12, God says that after David is dead and gone, he will raise up offspring for him. Doesn't it sound similar to what he had already said to Abraham? Oh, and what he had said to Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Only now, it is specifically through David's offspring that God will bless his people. And through David's offspring that all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Then God goes on to show us how this will happen. In verse 13, God says, I will establish His throne forevermore. Now we see that the blessings that are to come on the people of God, on the nations, will happen through an everlasting throne. Literally, it reads in verse 13, I will cause His throne to stand forever. So God gives David a seat to set on that will stand forever. Even when David's offspring sins, God will not remove his steadfast love. What that means is that he will not go back on his word, his covenant promise that he is making to David. But there's an important qualification that must be made here. While it is true that God's promise was a sure promise, that David's kingdom would stand without condition, the Davidic kings were called to faithfulness to the law, just like Israel was. So we've seen a parallel with the Abrahamic covenant. As we move into verses 14 and following, we see a parallel, in a sense, with the Mosaic covenant as well. In verse 14, God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Previously, God had called Israel his firstborn son. This language is now being applied to the king. As one pastor says, the Davidic king is now the personification of the nation. He is a representative of the nation. What do I mean by that? This is very important. The actions of the king determine the fate of the nation. The actions of the king affect the people of the king. They are inextricably linked. How it goes with the Davidic king is how it goes with the people of the king, for good or for ill. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, the instruction for the king, they were to write out in their own hand a full copy of the law. If they kept the law, things would go well for them and the people. If they didn't keep the law, things would go poorly for them and for the people. That's why God says to David 
when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. And the discipline for the king meant discipline for the nation. How it fares for the king is how it fares for the people. And after this grand promise that is made to David, things did not fare very well for the people of Israel for hundreds of years. And the chapters that follow in 2 Samuel, and the chapters that follow in 1 and 2 Kings, we see failure after failure after failure on the part of the Davidic kings. David himself, in chapter 11, fails miserably. And it not only harms him, it harms his whole family. Solomon will later fail miserably to keep God's law. It not only affects him, it results in the breaking, the division of the nation of Israel. As the kings of the northern kingdom sin miserably, it results in their complete destruction, hauled off into Assyria in 722 B.C. As the southern kings fail to follow God's law, it results in the exile in Babylon in 587 B.C. The house of David in the chapters in the years that follow chapter 7 don't look so great. His throne didn't seem so secure. It didn't look like it would stand forever. But God's promises stand, friends. When God makes a promise, He keeps His promise. And so the things promised in 2 Samuel 7 didn't begin to come to pass for almost a thousand years after they were made. But they did. They have come to pass through Jesus. They're coming to pass now as the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed to the nations and they will one day fully and finally come to pass when Christ returns. Luke 1 The angel Gabriel came to Mary and says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now listen to this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you think Mary maybe was thinking of 2 Samuel 7? As she heard these words? He will be great, just like God promised to David. He will be the Son of the Most High. Not simply a human representative of the people, like the previous Davidic kings, but the very Son of God in human form. Just like God promised to David. And of His kingdom there will be no end. But here's the thing. Unlike the previous kings, Jesus never committed any iniquity. He kept the law of God perfectly as a representative of the people of God. Why does this matter? 
will remember how it goes with the king is how it goes with the people of the king. Jesus is the new representative of the people of God and he has been faithful in the house of David. So the blessings promised to Abraham can now flow to the people who belong to the king. The blessings that belong to those who are part of David's house. And this leads me to my second point. Our standing is secure if we are seated in David's house. Which is Jesus' house. Our standing is secure if we're seated in Jesus' house. Why? Because David's house is secure. Through Jesus, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus' house has been made sure forever. He not only lived a righteous life that Adam failed to live, that Abraham failed to live, that David failed to live. He also died for our sins. He's not only king, he's also priest. And if we are in him, we have all of the blessings of his house. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a seat at the family table. We now are children of God. We have eternal life that is safe under the eternal throne of our King. How should we respond to this promise made to David, fulfilled in Christ, and now ours if we are in Christ? Well, David's response to God's Word gives guidance for how we should respond to him. David begins his response in verse 18 by setting down. And he says, Who am I? O Lord God, what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David is now right where he belongs. Sitting down, no longer in his palace, but before the Lord. No longer making plans for what he'll do for God, but humbly receiving the promises of God. No longer working, but believing. He goes on in verse 19 to say, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This is a very important verse. David realizes... This is remarkable to me. David realizes right then and there the promises that God had just made to him, they will be fulfilled a long way off. Even David knew that this pointed to Christ. But not only that, he also realizes that the promises made to him are not only for his consideration. They are instruction for mankind. Not just for David, not just for his sons, not just for Israel, but for all mankind. In Hebrew, the word is Adam. 
for the whole race of Adam. Guess what that means? For us. For us today. We need to consider that the well-being of all of the nations is wrapped up in this promise made in a thousand B.C. to David. The whole history of mankind, the whole well-being of all the earth is bound up in this promise. Jesus is King and His kingdom is forever. And how we respond to the King is the most important thing in our lives. Psalm 2, which we sung earlier. There are two responses. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed? That's one response. The Lord sits in heaven and laughs. He holds them in derision. Why? They may rage for a time, but they will be judged eventually. But there's another response. Those who kiss the Son will be blessed. Those who bow the knee as the King hands out, stretches out His ring, kiss the Son, kiss His ring, pledge allegiance to the King, they will be blessed. Friends, there is a King. He is seated on the throne. How will you respond to Him? Will you rage against Him? Or will you bow the knee to Him? Will you be judged? Or will you receive God's grace and mercy? When we come to this realization that Jesus is King, that all of the grace and the blessings of God are found in Him, and when we respond in faith, that will lead us to do two things. Two points of application. Things that are not really doing, but come from a place of setting. Setting in awe of the grace of God. First, we will praise God. That's what David does. I'm not going to follow the order of this section. I just want to draw your attention to a few things. Above all, David praises God for who he is. For who he is. Look at verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. But the reason David knows God is great and who he is is because of what he has done in very concrete ways for the people of God. The reason David knows who God is is because God has made himself known. He has established a relationship with his people and with David. So in verse 20, David says, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Verse 23, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things. Or in verse 24, you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. When we think of the grace that God has shown to us, that He has called us to Himself, that He has sent His Son to redeem us, that He knows us, the God of the universe, 
what more can we do than to sit down and thank God and to give Him praise? But David doesn't stop at praising for all of the promises that He has made to him. He also pleads those same promises of God. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. So I want you to notice the order here. David believes the promises. That's where it starts. He praises God, thanks God for what he has done. But then he gets on his knees and he prays that what God has promised will come to pass. The Puritans called this pleading the promises. This is how we ought to pray with our Bible opened. Praying according to God's will, which has been revealed in His Word. Praying with the grain of Scripture. We know, for example, that God has promised to David's offspring, to Jesus, an everlasting kingdom. We know that He has promised that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth before the end comes. We know that He has promised that one day gathered around His eternal throne will be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We believe this promise, but we also pray that it should come about. Let Your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Send out laborers for the harvest. Call in the nations. He's promised that He will do it. We plead the promises of God. God has done so much for us, friends. Sure, we are called to do much for Him, but let's just start by setting down and listening to His promises. Let's sit down and receive them. Let's sit down and pray that God would bring them to pass. My favorite poem in the English language is Love 3 by George Herbert. I've read it before to close a sermon. And so I scratched it from my sermon originally, but I thought it is the appropriate way to close things down today. I pray that it will help you to sit down and receive God's grace. This is what it says. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me, grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked a thing. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? 
truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And you know that, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Let us pray. Father, help us to sit down, to receive the promises that you have made, the gospel, humbly, gratefully, and then help us to stand in full assurance of those promises so that we can go forth and serve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.